0: Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Grateful to get to join you for worship this New Year's uh, Eve morning. And excited to uh, get to open God's word with you uh if you're new or visiting we'd especially love to get to know you I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City and uh like Becca was saying small groups is a great way to do that we're about to start a new study this uh this uh, this spring semester here just in January and so now's a great time to get plugged in with a group and so we'd love to help you get connected in that way help you grow up and continue to know and follow Jesus so um excited as well to be with you this morning we're kind of doing a little one-off sermon this morning uh As we uh, prepare for a new year ahead of us, Uh, Aaron and John and I, the L team, have spent the last couple weeks planning ahead for the future year. Got a bunch of things we're excited to uh, study with you together on Sunday mornings. But uh, this week, I just wanted to spend this morning just kind of starting off uh, thinking about just like as we think about starting a new year. And I don't know about you, but New Year's, uh, this season's always really exciting for me. It feels like fresh starts and new beginnings. It always feels like a season that's full of hope and anticipation participation and but it's not just me. There's just generally this this there's something appealing to us uh, in general about this idea of new starts and fresh beginnings, like the ones that seem to come around at, at New Year's. And in response to that kind of those new starts, those fresh beginnings, a lot of us set goals. We make resolutions as we start a new year together. And most of the time, those send they t- they tend to center around quitting some bad habits and starting some good habits. And and while I think there's a lot of good and healthy ways that we try to change at the beginning of a new year, year Um, i think oftentimes what's underneath the changes that we try to make uh, is this desire to kind of reinvent or rediscover ourselves we want to find out who we really are who we really can be it's like becca was saying it's the kind of new year new me mantra and if the the reality is that underneath all that i think oftentimes is really a search for an identity who am i really A few years back, I remember seeing a friend of mine post something on social media around this time, said that she said, in a year where you can be anything, be yourself and surround yourself with people and things that bring out the best version of you. And you, as you'd expect, a post like that got all kinds of affirmation and likes and, and uh, people really cheered that on because that's a message that resonates not just with the way that we think about our lives around New Year's, but with the way that our culture tends to think about this, the, the very mantra, the very heart of, of our culture. You see, the reality is that we, we live in a culture that is obsessed with the idea of finding and becoming the true you. The highest virtues in our culture are individual freedom, personal happiness, the self-definition and self-expression. The, the, most, historic, the, most, uh, the, the most heroic storylines are the ones where someone looks deep inside their own hearts, their desires, and they discover who they really are, and then they express that to the world, and especially when that means going against whatever family or friends or political affiliations or previous generations or, or religious authorities have to say. See, the way to find a sense of fulfillment and happiness and self-worth, right, is to be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Speak your truth. You see, but at the, the truth that this message, what I like to call, is kind of the, the gospel of expressive individualism. It's, it's not just different than the gospel that Jesus preached. It is utterly contradictory to it. See, and if we're not careful, it can be easy for us as Christians to allow this kind of false gospel to infiltrate our hearts and minds in the way that we think about and relate to the world around us. So it can become the basis on which we form our own sense of identity and worth and significance. And so as we think about beginning another new year together as, a, as the people of God, I, I want to show you from God's word this morning is that in an age obsessed with becoming yourself, the, the countercultural And seemingly paradoxical message of the gospel is that the way you find the real you, the way you you find who you were always meant to be, right? Is it's it's not by being true to who you think you are, it's about being true to who God says you are. You see, the vision that God has for us is that we that we wouldn't isn't that we'd look into our own hearts and find and become. Who we think we are, but rather that we would be captivated by Jesus, and that we would increasingly become more and more like Him. And so to that end, we're gonna take a look this morning at Colossians chapter three, and we're gonna see how not only how what God's Word has to say about the true you, it runs contrast to the the kind of the false gospel of expressive individualism. But I wanna help you see why it's actually good news for your heart, why it's really good news. And so that in a world that is obsessed with becoming yourself, we might instead become obsessed with being like Jesus. And so I can't wait to show it to you this morning. Let's pray. We'll dive into God's word together. God, we are so grateful for you. And as we come this morning, Lord Jesus, to study your word, as we think about entering into a new year, God, we pray that you might increasingly cause us to be a people who find ourselves by finding you. And that you might help us to identify the lies uh, all around us that seek to tell us the, the way to find the real, our real selves is to look inward. We pray, Jesus, that as we study your word this morning, that by the power of your spirit, you might help us to look upwards for you. And we might see who you have made us to be, who you have shown us to be, and who you have died so that we might become. And so we need you for that this morning. We pray that the good news of your word would be good news to our hearts. And so only you can make that happen. We pray that you would this morning. Amen. Well, we're going to be this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, reads this way. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger and rage, malice and slander, filthy language from your lips, and do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices, have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, we are not going to suck the marrow out of everything there is in these couple of verses this morning, but instead what I want to do is just highlight for you two key takeaways, two really important things, uh, the two ways that God's word, what God's word says about the true you contradicts, runs counter to the false gospel of expressive individualism. And The, the first is simply this, is that the true you is found by looking upwards instead of inwards. The true you is found by looking upwards instead of inwards. See, our culture tells us that the the way you find out who you really are is to look deep into your heart, discover your innermost desires and passions... But God's word tells us that the way that you find your true self isn't by looking inward. It's actually instead by looking upward. Verse 1 says it this way, Paul writes, Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. For you died and your life, that's right, that's your identity, the true you, who you really are. It's now hidden with Christ in God. See, Paul's saying that the way that you find the true you, the real you, the person you were always made and meant to be, Right, it's, it's, it's by focusing our attention upwards towards Christ instead of inwards towards ourselves Now, I don't know if you've ever had uh, the opportunity to teach a kid how to ride a two-wheeler um, I have had a couple of opportunities to do that And it is both incredibly fun and a bit harrowing, right? And one of the things that you'll find if you try to teach a kid uh, how to ride a bike is that, is that there, are, there are two things you're going to find yourself shouting from down the street, right, constantly over and over again, right? And the first one is keep pedaling, right? The first one is always keep pedaling because they like take three pedals and then they stop, right? So the first thing you're going to shout is always keep pedaling. The second thing you are going to find yourself shouting endlessly down the street in love, right, not anger, but in love for your kid, right, is look up. Because every kid in the history of ever who has ever learned how to ride a bike, they start by staring directly at their front wheel. Every kid I've ever seen try to learn how to ride a bike, that's how they start. And the reality is, that doesn't go well. Like three steps down the road, they're like veering off, hitting a parked car or a mailbox or something, right? And you're constantly having to remind them, look up, look up, right? Right? See, the reason why you have to do that is because the reality is that where you are looking determines where you are going. And that is true if you are riding a bike, and it is true true of our lives. It's true about the way that we think about finding and becoming our true self. See, our culture says the true you is found by looking deep inside yourself and then expressing without inhibition whatever you find deep inside there. But verse 5 tells us that that what we find deep inside our own hearts, our earthly nature, is something that should be put to death, not paraded around. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6 echoes that truth. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, for the mind governed by the flesh is death. Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 9, adds it this way. He just so poignantly writes that the heart is deceitful, above all things one commentator puts it this way he says the gospel shows us that the depths of our hearts are steeped in sin and that what we need most is not expression but is instead redemption see when you look inward to try to find your true self what always happens is you just end up spiraling off course going deeper and deeper into your own sinful heart. But when you look up at Christ and the identity that you have wrapped up in Him, all that He has done and who He is, then it enables us to set a stable course in the right direction. Because, you see, He is not just a a picture of all that humanity is meant to be. He's the only one that never changes. Our desires, the things that matter most to us, our highest priorities— those probably aren't the same this year as they were even last year for you, right? See, we're always changing, but Jesus never does. But more than just showing us the right direction and setting our hearts and our minds on the true version of ourselves hidden in Christ, it gives us this incredible kind of security. See, because it, it reminds us that our identity isn't something we have to achieve for ourselves, but is something instead that we are, have already received from a gracious and loving God. Again, verse one begins, since then you have been raised with Christ. See, what Paul's doing in chapter three is he's giving the implications of everything he's been writing about in the first two chapters of Colossians. He spent those first two chapters reminding Christians about who Jesus is and all that he's done and who we now are in him. In chapter one, he wrote about how we were alienated from God's and enemies of his, but about how God reconciled us to himself by Christ's body, how God qualified us to share in the inheritance of his people and how we are now children of God and members of his family and brothers and sisters in Christ. In chapter 2, Paul went on to describe how while we were once condemned in our sin and found guilty and, and instead on the cross, God cancels our record of debt and he paid the penalty in Christ. And now instead of being found guilty, you and I, he looks on us and we are found holy and blameless and righteous that there's no blemish, that we're free from accusation, that we have redemption and forgiveness. We were once dead in our sins, Paul writes in verse 13 of chapter 2, but now he says we're alive in him. That God's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. In Christ we've been brought to fullness. We've been brought to completion. And so when Paul writes in verse in, cha- in verse 1 of chapter 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. He's not just giving a list of commands. What he's doing is he's saying, church, be who you already are. Be who you already are. One author put it this way. He said, genuine self-knowledge begins by looking at God and noticing how he is looking at us. That enables us to see that the true, our true self is not something you need to construct through a process of self-improvement or deconstruct by some means of psychological analysis. It is not an object to be grasped, nor it is an archetype to be actualized. It is not even some inner hidden part of you. Rather, it is your total self as you were created by God and as you are being redeemed in Christ. Do you you see the life that's in that kind of an identity? Do you see the kind of the freedom that there is there? You see, true freedom is not the ability to define yourself and do whatever you want. See, true freedom is the ability to be freed to do what you were always made to do. See, real freedom is found in the right restrictions. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 8, if you hold to my teachings, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, in contrast to the self-made, self-defined identity that expressive individualism heralds as liberation and freedom, the reality is that it's just a crushing burden. See, not only do you have to figure out who you really are, you then have to become whatever it is you think you found you really are. We're supposed to be free from guilt by defining ourselves, but the reality is that the weight of needing to achieve the identity that you set out for yourself, that is a, a crushing burden. Growing up, my my dad's favorite movie, I don't know about, maybe this is like every dad's favorite movie growing up, but my dad's favorite movie was Chariots of Fire, right? it's about this Olympic uh, runner named Eric Liddell. And throughout the the movie, it's really clear that Eric's identity is not found in running, but it's found in his his faith and his, his relationship with God. And what happens is that that reality enables him not only to truly enjoy running, it enables him also to choose not to run. In contrast, there's this really poignant scene where one of the teammates is preparing for a race and they're about to run. And and this teammate confesses to Eric. He he says this. He says, in an hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes. I'll look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? See, none of us are Olympic runners, right? None of us could even get that far in 10 seconds, Right? But the truth is that those sentiments are often true of us. See, for some of you, your identity is wrapped up in your career and every performance review. Right? It's, a, it's another test to see if you've proved yourself, if you're really worthy. Right? For some of you, it's not your career, it's your kids. And every report card, every parent-teacher conference, right? it's, it's not an evaluation of how your kids are doing, it's an evaluation of how you're doing. Some of you, it's just found in just being successful, however you define that. And what happens is you, you, in order to achieve that identity, you always find yourself comparing yourselves to other people just endlessly to figure out if you've really been successful or not. See, the truth is when we define ourselves, when our identity is wrapped up in who we say we are and the need to become whatever that is, a good employee, a good parent, right, a good professional, whatever it might be, It's not freedom that you find. It's just more slavery. We're ruled by trying to justify our existence and what you all know is that it's a burden you can't carry. See, but the gospel of Jesus is altogether different. It says that your identity is not something you define or that you achieve. It is something you receive and are then invited to live in response to. See, we're God's forgiven, beloved, image-bearing children, your value, your worth, your significance. It doesn't have to do with what you achieve or what you fail to achieve. It doesn't have to do with your success as a parent or your lack thereof. It doesn't have to do with how much money you make. It doesn't have to do with how great your behavior is. Instead, you have a measurable value and worth because you are God's image-bearing representative. More than that, by faith in Christ, you are his adopted child. And when you let that identity sink in, it changes you in a way that no self-made identity can. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, If your identity is in Jesus, it's given to you by grace, then on the one hand you are humbled into the dust because you were such a sinner that Jesus had to die for you and you weren't able to achieve it. And yet at the same time you are affirmed to the skies because he accepts you and loves you and that means you are both bold and humble at once. No other system of thought, no other culture, can, no other approach to identity can create that kind of person. Hannah Anderson, she echoes these words when she writes this. She says, our identity as image bearers simultaneously elevates and humbles us. It reminds us that our calling is too grand and too glorious to be contained in human categories, and yet it confronts our pride by reminding us that we are not God. And in this sense, finding our identity as image bearers, it centers us. It puts us in our place in the best possible way. See, the gospel of Jesus, it tells you that your true self is found not by looking inward, but by looking upward at him. And he not only shows us who we were meant to be, he redeems us so that we can become who we were meant to be. See, and that leads us to the second way that God's Word says about the true you contradicts the false gospel of expressive individualism. See, if the, if the first was that you find yourself by looking upward instead of inward, then the second thing is that the true you is realized by dying to yourself instead of expressing yourself. See, expressive individualism, it... It advocates desires, all of them. Anything that gets in the way of expressing those desires is a problem. See, with the Bible, it doesn't affirm every desire we have. In fact, just the opposite. In fact, we're told over and over that not all our desires are good. Not all of them should be expressed. In fact, many of them, as Paul writes in our passage this morning, should be put to death. Verse 5, he continues, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's strong language. Right, He doesn't say, tame those desires, harness them, hide them. He says, reject them, kill them, die to them, be done with them. Trevin Wax, he writes this. He says, the Christian preacher tells people all day long, do not be true to yourself, for the self you'd be true to is rotten to the core. Authenticity isn't accepting your sins. It's admitting them and then being true to the person that King Jesus has declared you to be. See, the reality is, is that God's word is our guide to which desires are right and are wrong in us. And if one of our desires doesn't align with his word, then we shouldn't act on it, regardless of how much we want. to. See, but dying to our own desires wasn't Paul, I, Paul's ideas. It was Jesus' himself. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves... They take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. See, at the heart of the gospel is an invitation that we might deny ourselves, but it's also the good news that denying ourselves is about saying no to who we thought we were so that we might say yes to who Jesus says we are instead. And this is true for every single one of us. For all of us, there are going to be parts of our, things that we feel are central to who we are, that God calls us to turn around on. Things that often the world celebrates, right? your personality, things that are true about you. There'll be all kinds of things that God, for all of us, calls us to turn around on that feel fundamental to who we are. One commentator puts it this way. He says, The fruit desiring, lie believing, will this wandering self is the very things we bury as we're buried with Christ. His death for us becomes our death to self, and his new life becomes ours, a life in which we deny ourselves instead of listening to ourselves, in which we take up our cross instead of taking up our dreams, in which we follow him instead of following our hearts. And yet here's the good news. See, self-denial is not the road to self-destruction. See, the good news of the gospel is that self-denial is actually the road to self-discovery. It's the way to finding your life. It's the way to realize the true you. Jesus says, all those who keep their life will lose it. But all those who lose their life for my sake will find it. In his conclusion to mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis sums all these things up when he, he puts it this way. He says, only Jesus can help us discover and become who we are meant to be. The more we get what we call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we will become. This principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit To death, even the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes, the death of your whole body in the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find real, eternal life. He wraps up this quote this way. He says, look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred and loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown." See, the paradoxical message of the gospel is that the way that you find the real you is by looking upward at Jesus instead of inward at yourself. And to die to who you think you are so that you might become who he's really made you to be. You see, giving ourselves wholly to Jesus, that's the one way to discover who you really are. It's the one way to discover who he has made you to be. It's the one way to experience the kind of riches and life, not financial, but just like blessing that he talks about in his word in this life and in the next. And it's the only way to fulfill the purpose for which he has made us. And that can seem scary and that can seem counterintuitive, But it is the narrow road that leads to life. And so the question I want to put before you this morning as we head into a new year together is simply this. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus? Have you ever made him the king in your life? Or do you still live as though this life is about you, as though the way you find fulfillment and life and joy is by being true to yourself? Or do you realize, like the Apostle Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but instead for him who died for them and was raised again? See, the reality is that some of you are here this morning and you've been around Jesus your whole life. You've been around religion. You've been around spirituality your whole life. But you have never surrendered to Jesus as king. He's always been just an add-on. He's never been Lord. And so you have never died to yourself. Instead, you're always, you've always asked his plans and his desires and his priorities to die to your own. And it's not working for you. And if you're honest, many of you have experienced what C.S. Lewis wrote about, right? You're experiencing that emptiness and the loneliness at the lies at the end of expressive individualism. And you've given yourself to this goal of becoming the true you and expressing that um, either it just endlessly keeps failing you. Or even if you feel like you've succeeded, you found the end result lacking. You're not finding the life that you're looking for. You're not finding the joy that you are looking for. You are not finding the satisfaction and sense of fulfillment or peace. It's always elusive. And in love for you, I need you to hear, it always will be without Jesus. See, your true you, the who you really are, is hidden in him. It's wrapped up in him. It's in who he's made you to be and who he died so that you might become. And so some of you are here this morning and the invitation is that you might surrender to Jesus as king for the very first time. That you might start dying to yourself and living for him instead of asking him to die for you and live for you. See, but some of you are here, and you have surrendered to Jesus, and your identity is in Him, but instead of setting your minds on things above, you've been soaking in the lies of the culture that's all around us, and this morning, I want to graciously but clearly, want to call you towards repentance. You see, to reject the lies that say that you are most yourself and that you are most free when you believe and do whatever you think is best... And I want to encourage you to confess that what your heart, just like mine, needs most is not self-expression, but is redemption. I want to encourage you to choose deliberately to set your eyes on Jesus. See, at the beginning of this passage, Paul writes when he says he tells us to set our minds on things above. That word set is, in the original language, it's, it's written as an active imperative. And so what it means is to set and keep on setting. Is this continual kind of mindset. See, setting your minds on Jesus is something that we have to endeavor to join God in every day of our lives. And the truth is that you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. You need a community that will help you point you towards him. And so wherever you're at this morning, in a year where you can be anything, I want to encourage you, instead of resolving to be yourself, and to surround yourself with people and things that will bring out the best version of you, I want to instead call you to resolve to become who Jesus has made you to be. And to surround yourself with people and things who will help you to become more and more like him. People who will point you to him. To the true you, found by dying to yourself and living to him, people who in an age obsessed with becoming yourself will instead help you to be obsessed with becoming more like Jesus. See, in reminding ourselves about who Jesus is and about who we are because of him, that's the, that's part of the big part of the reason why we take communion every week. With the bread, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us as he lived the life that we should have lived, showing us who we were meant to be. And with the drink, we remember that his body was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died, redeeming us so that we might become who we were made to be. And so we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and all that he's accomplished for us, and it reminds us of how worthy Jesus is of our worship and our holiness, and our obedience, and our lives given to him. And so communion doesn't save you, and it doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It's a chance to remember Jesus, to set your mind on things above where he is, so that in remembering him, we might respond in love and gratitude to him with lives that are obsessed with becoming more and more like And so as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if he is your Savior and your Lord, if he is the source of your identity, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion. You can dip the bread in the juice and take communion as you remember his body and blood broken and shed for you. But if you're here this morning and Jesus is not yet your Savior and your King, you're still figuring out who he is and what it means to surrender to him and if that's even safe to do. And I want you to know you are welcome here. But instead of coming to the communion table, I want to encourage you, come to Jesus. Receive him as Lord and as King and as Savior. As we take communion, as we sing, talk with God, where are you looking to find your identity and significance and worth? Is it in who you think you are or is it in who Jesus says you are? Are you trying to look inward or are you trying to look upward to find and become the real you? And where might Jesus be calling you to look up at him so that you might start dying to yourself and that you might find and become the person you were always made to be in him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We're grateful, Jesus, not just that you free us from our sin, but you free us from the slavery to defining ourselves. And you give us new life and like you say jesus your yoke is easy your burden is light and so we pray lord god might you help us to become a people who receive the identity you give to us instead of trying to manufacture one ourselves might we look upwards to you instead of inwards at ourselves and might in seeing you jesus Might we find not just the example of who you have called us to be and made us to be, but might we find the love and grace and power we need to become it as you redeem us. And so Jesus, in a year where we can be anything, help us to become more like you and to surround ourselves with people and things that will help us to do just that, we pray. Amen.